Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Episode number 77 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome. It's uh, it's good to be here, bud. It's another uh, beautiful day here in sunny, rainy Boston. But uh, no, we've got an amazing guest, and uh, I'm excited for today's podcast. But I'm going to let you finish up with our introduction. Absolutely. And it's always cool that we can bring back somebody that we met you know, a bunch of years ago and see what's kind of transpired in their careers uh, since that time. And, and and this guy I met when he was a PT student and Dr. Kyle Bolzer. And uh, since then, he's gone on to do some pretty cool stuff. And and so we were making our list. I want to make sure I talk to Kyle because uh, he's he's really done a bunch of stuff. He's a, he's a physical therapist who currently treats and trains patients and clients in, in New York City. But prior to being out in the city, he spent three years in an outpatient clinic in, in New Jersey, uh, which was actually uh, connected to my facility. Um, he And he saw base, basically everything as far as all ages and diagnosis. And then, you know, he's got his Bachelor of Science from SUNY Albany, and then he got uh, his Doctorate of Physical Therapy from Sage Graduate School. And we were just actually talking before we went live about uh, how I uh, helped him with some of the research he was doing with, with FMS when he was in grad school. So uh, he's an apprentice and associate of Dr. Charlie Wine. Groff, a good friend of ours who we had on our show. He's one of our early guests. Uh, and he, he drives to keep his clients training while guiding them and their coaches with the appropriate lateralizations, regressions, and treating as needed. And we're going to talk a whole bunch about that. Um, and his treatments consist of a full body assessment evaluations for exactly which impairments uh, are determined and in individual plans that are built on, on that consist of manual therapies, exercise considerations. Uh, he's formally trained in SFMA and FMS, manipulation, dry needling, functional range release, and a bunch of other approaches, all with the goal of kind of each patient's individual complaints and quality movement and being his his area of expertise. So welcome to the show, Kyle. Happy to be here. Did, didn't know there was that much that could be said about me before, uh, before I get to speak, but I guess all of a sudden it's been 10 and a half years of practice, and I guess we were talking before we went on. It's been 11 years since I met Eric, which the What's cool about the the fitness and performance and rehab world is it's small and just gets smaller by the day. But I had read Gray Cook's, you know, the the movement book, and then uh, got connected with Larie Draper, the publisher. And turns out that doing like those two small things had such like a butterfly or ripple effect on my career because it led me to Eric, which led me to the FMS and to some research, and then doing an internship in Montville, and ultimately. Larry led me to Charlie and now I'm so in it with Charlie that it's it, it's just it's a little wild to be here but happy to be here. Very cool. It's uh it's pretty cool when you uh you know you can surround yourself with with people that are willing to help you uh you know along the way. 
because it doesn't always happen that way. And it, it's pretty cool when you get to find those people. So, but we're going to change gears a little bit. Let's talk about the business of physical therapy. Uh, your practice operates as a hybrid model. What does that mean? And what are some of the advantages and what are some of the drawbacks? Yeah. So hybrid model, meaning I, I started out uh, working with Charlie in the city. So let's put the, the three years outpatient aside. Uh, that was purely like the cash-based model. And I put it in quotation marks because nobody pays in cash anymore. <laughs> um, it's it, They should start calling it the credit card-based or Venmo-based model. Um, but yeah, so it started out purely like you pay for our service upfront. Like you come in, you're going to see me for an hour. You know exactly uh, how much you're going to pay me for that hour. And that's how everything else in the world works. So why shouldn't healthcare work that way? Maybe we'll talk about that at some point. Um, and then along the way, I actually found out that, uh, so that where the hybrid comes in is we also do, or I do, Charlie doesn't, but the rest of us do, we do out of network uh, insurance billing. And turns out there are some pretty great out of network insurance policies in New York City specifically. So once I found that uh, I could bill or have my billing guy bill people's insurance policies, and I make more money and the patient has to pay less up front. It's sort of a everybody wins except the insurance company, which hopefully they're not listening because I think we're all sort of okay if the insurance company isn't the winner here. I think they'll be all right. I, yeah, I think they'll be okay. Nobody's going to lose any sleep over that one. So, you know, what happens now is before I get to talking about kind of how the, we've seen the, the business of PT change over time, we're going to hit a lot of those points that you talked about is that the decision-making of the patient has changed. Where I remember when I first started out, and this is going back 20, 25 years, is like, it was, you know, your copay was literally like five bucks or it was like 10 bucks. And so people went to physical therapy because look, hey, it's five or 10 bucks, if anything, for my copay. And, and if it was local, that's where I went. I just went to whatever the most convenient thing was. Well, then copays went to, to 15 and then 25 and now copays you're looking at 50 bucks or more and then what started happening is i started to notice clients of mine would pivot and say well look if i got to lay out between 50 and 100 bucks for a copay you know what i don't get a whole lot out of it i don't you know i'll just give it to you because i seem to get more when i see you than i do with them and i don't have to go as often where do you see how that has affected patient decisions yeah that is, uh, it is interesting that the co-pays have sort of started to drive people's decision-making. Um, but, but personally, I think it's for the better. I think at some point in the, the show sheet mentioned, we're going to, we're going to talk about like the future or the current and then future, uh, physical therapy landscape where I think because my model or our model of physical therapy is so similar to like your training or coaching model that it almost gets pushed pushed up relative to the norm like if people are not seeing any benefit when they're paying you know they're they're three times a week fifty dollar copay and they can see me once for a few hundred bucks or whatever it is they see me once and i can lay out a rehab plan and i can either give them uh, a training program or talk to their coach directly and say hey guys you know susie came to me with this knee problem uh, share share her program with me and I'm just going to swap out some exercises. You guys keep training as is. She's got a few things that I want her to do and let's touch base in two weeks. That to me is just way more efficient than, you know, uh, you know, three times a week for eight weeks and 
you have a PT aide taking them through their exercises, which don't get the, 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 uh, the intensity and volume don't get changed from session to session or week to week. And you just get stuck in this, this complacency, uh, everybody. And so I think it just, that has made it easier to look better in the eyes of the consumer. Now you would hope that that would be the, the, the rising tides that lifts all the boats, but what confuses things now in, in the trend that you've seen in, in the last five to 10 years is so many clinics have been taken over by these large corporately owned conglomerates and kind of talk about the impact that that's had not only on the patient care, but the clinicians themselves. Yeah, this is a good one because, uh, so last week I was actually in New Jersey for a Maitland manipulation course. And of course you get like 10 to 15 physical therapists in a room who've all been practicing for 10 years. You know, the, the, the conversations will come up and look, it's, there's a lot of angles to answer this one. I think it seems like it's a bubble that might even burst on the corporate side of things, because if reimbursement is going down and companies are trying to continue to buy up uh, clinics to go from you know, 100 clinics to 150 to 150 clinics to sort of maintain like their business profit margins, then you're either having to make PTs work more, you're having like, like you have to trim the fat somewhere. And in that process, I think you have PTs doing 40, 50, 60, 70 appointments a week. Like, I, I don't even know what it, like, I'm so far removed from it. Cause for me, a busy week is like 25 appointments, 30 appointments I could do, you know, before having a kid now having a kid, like I've not even done 10 in a week yet. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but you're seeing physical therapists get burnout. They're not getting mentored. And, you know, you practice for three years. You don't get any better at what you do. Your patients aren't getting better. So you're either probably jumping ship to go work for the, uh, the insurance company, which makes me hate you. Um, or you, you're, you got to leave the profession altogether because, look, anybody that got into physical therapy for the money was completely misled. Nobody gets into it because they think they're going to make a lot of money. Uh, in any case, like, I think I probably talk more people out of it than I talk into it because you have to really want to do it or have to believe that you can do it in a way that we do it where, you know, there isn't a glass ceiling. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, I probably went on a tangent or two there, but I think I answered part of the now, question. We're, and we're going to circle back to, to, to some of the, your advice for, for young PTs coming up. But, uh, you know, what was amazing to me and, and, my brother, you know, being a doctor of physical therapy and works in the city as well, and he's moved on from patient care to now looking at metrics. He was actually our first guest on our show, um, but you talk to him about it all the time. And, and the reason why they want to go from 100 to 150 clinics, because the, the margin of profit is actually pretty small. Like when you go in there and you think, oh, my God, they have all these patients in here and they're billing out this much, you realize it's not a, it, as much of a profit margin as you would think. And so they have to do it on volume. And that's why you get to where you get, you know, PTs that are burned out seeing 60, 70 patients. And God forbid, if you're patient number 68, like what kind of what kind of shitty level of care are you getting um, if you're patient number 68 of the week, right? No, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I, I've been there as the clinician, like doing a, a 20 session day in 13 hours. 
I was not the same PT at 7 a.m. that I was at 10 a.m. that I was at 3 p.m. that I was at 7 p.m. And then, and then the paperwork catches up with you. No, I couldn't agree more, but makes me that much more grateful to have figured out while I was in PT school that I was going to get out of that model as quickly as I could and, and into this one. And while we are figuring out how to um, grow it from a volume standpoint, we are not sacrificing patient or client care or core values in the process. And that to me, like, like you mentioned, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. We're doing that as a business, even though I think physical therapy as a whole is like, it's forcing more of a dichotomy where we're probably going to see more cash-based or one-on-one fee-for-service type care. And I I really couldn't tell you what's going to happen to the outpatient. Like maybe at some point it's going to be all physical therapy assistants working for one physical therapist in one clinic. Like you have a, a PT that runs the show and then it's 10 PT assistants and, and 10 high school students as aides. Um, but I, I don't think I'm going to be worrying about it too much. Yeah, the only thing I'm worried about is don't ever get hurt and need that kind of care. Um, <laughs> so, so, all right. So you're you're out there. You're an independent practitioner. How do you build a practice? Like, how do you go about you know getting getting patients and getting referrals when you're competing against you know these big corporate conglomerates? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And um, really, you know, I don't think like quote unquote mom and pop businesses really exist in physical therapy, but we are sort of mom and pop in the sense that you know, I think like what makes a mom and pop sort of business, a mom and pop business. And after that, I'm not going to say mom and pop anymore um, is the, like the, the product or the service it like speaks for itself. And so a lot of our referrals are word of mouth from previous patients, you know, friends, family members, um, or the surgeons who have, we have good relationships with. And because we're so low volume, like, I don't, I don't need 20 inquiries a week that turn into five evaluations that turn into, you know, three long-term patients. I'll sometimes not get an inquiry for a week or two or three, uh, and then, you know, three or four come, but because we just continue to put our service, our core values how we deliver our patient care um, first. We we haven't ever really run into a situation where we've had to pivot from that to be like, oh shit, we need more people to come through the door. Like it, it's always just taking care of itself, whether it's because, you know, Charlie is at the top and he is like, he is well known and, and you know, he's in Florida now, but he still gets inquiries for New York City and, and then they see me until he's back in New York City or they see Chris. Um, who, who also works with us, but, you know, like we don't have to do any advertising. We don't have to like, you know, pump business cards around the city or, or take out ads on the, on the subway. Like we almost, we almost don't want that. And, you know, I have my own business website where you can inquire through and I have, you know, I've, I've, um, I've, I've converted people in that way, but I almost think it's harder to do than like, all right, so Eric comes to see me. We have, you know, we have we have like three sessions in three weeks, knock it out of the park. Eric then tells people, you got to see my guy. Like I only had to see him three times and he gave me all this stuff to do on my own. Like, or, or you know, he, he cut through the bullshit. Like I, I spend the full hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours with me, 
like that is so much more powerful than, you know, seeing a website or, you know, seeing like, you know, I was just in New Jersey last week, like seeing Cal orthopedic, like I still remember Cal and, and what they do in, in the Jersey. And they're like, like they're marketing machines. We're like the antithesis of that. Like our, our reputation, I think generally precedes us. Um, and being able to lean on that and not have to pivot from that ever is really, really valuable. Yeah, it's like the old quote from Steve Martin, be so good, they can't ignore you. Uh, you know, I think uh, with a lot of gyms and, and and clinics, if you're good, you'll get busy. I mean, if you're good, you'll get busy. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go crazy with the ads. Um, we've we've been there, done that as a, as a business. You know, it's just, we're getting to the point where it's like, we don't even... We don't even advertise anymore. We just get to the point where people come in and we get a, a constant flow of leads, which is pretty awesome. So, um, all right. So let's talk about uh, where you're at because you're in the city. So do you think from a business standpoint, um, because you're in one of the biggest cities in the world, that that business model is going to look a little bit differently uh, than in a suburban or a rural area? That's a great question. Having Having come from a suburban or a rural area, uh, upstate New York and having contemplated going back up there to try and run a model like this. Um, I've thought about it. I don't know if I have a, a hard answer, but I think, look, you can argue two ways. You could argue that it's, it's easier to do this model in some capacity in suburban upstate New York, because you might be the only person doing it. And so just by simply being different than everybody else, like you might be able to stand on that. Now in the city, there's 7 million people here. So I've, I've seen people that went to, I won't say a hospital's name, I'll leave that out of it, but they went to this hospital's outpatient, you know, physical therapy clinic, post-op. Uh, they could barely get in. Like they, they couldn't get the appointments they wanted. And then when they did get in, it did not go as well as they were led to believe. And then they came to see me and they were like, I wish I knew. And I'm like, I told you. <laughs> um, so I think the, I think the model can exist. If we're talking like purely stepping away from the in-network insurance based model, I think it can look similar in the suburbs compared to uh, in the city, um, but maybe maybe like the ancillary pieces are a little bit different. Like, I don't know, the, the gyms are probably, there's not as many gyms probably in one town in the suburbs as there are in the city. Like at one point in this summer, I could be in three different gyms and a person's home gym in one day. Like, I don't think you're doing that in the city. Like you have to probably or in the suburbs, you, you have to get into one spot and then hope that people are willing to drive 15, 20 minutes to you. The city is interesting because sometimes people will be like, oh yeah, I'll see you in Soho, but I won't see you in Midtown. And I'm like, it's like five extra minutes on the subway, but all right, I'll, I'll accommodate you until, uh, until we ultimately have one spot that we're in again, like we used to, um, and then make people come to us. Now, I think another dynamic that plays in with this is the actual archetype or avatar of the patient themselves. Like the, the people that are going to get driven to you are people that actually want to get better. But remember, there's a whole contingent of people that are being sent to physical therapy that don't really have a lot of drive to get better. You know, my brother's told me nightmare stories of working on people who come in with workman's comp 
And like, he would just like put a fingertip on their shoulder and say, how does that feel? And he said, oh, it kills me. So, so when I put my fingertip on your shoulder, your foot hurts. Ah, oh, it's killing me. Because that guy doesn't want to go back to work, right? He, he's, he's getting to stay home and watch cartoons while he's getting paid. So, you know, there's not always that motivation to be there. So I think it makes a big difference to have that person who's driven to get better. And then kind of circling back to our conversation with the person who's, who makes that decision that I'd rather pay the extra money out of pocket versus um, what my insurance will cover. Because I, I want to get better. I don't care um, what my insurance covers. I want to get better and I want to get better now. Right. So talk a little bit about like the difference in the people and almost weeding that out. And because I know I do it for myself when people come to me, because I see people much more coaching role. Like if you want someone to get you to work out, you want that kind of trainer, like don't come to me. I'm not that guy. Um, so talk about how that how that plays in the physical therapy world in terms of the patients that you see in, in the kind of the avatar that works well with you and the one that doesn't. Yeah, that's uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because. It's almost uh, the way, look, one, the business model is its own filter. Like we cost X. So people who truly value what we can give them or do for them, they, they sort of have to feel that way before they come through the door. The other filter is that because we exist in gyms, um, like our population is active. Like, like mo most of our referrals are people either from trainers or coaches or athletes or performers. Um, so they, they have some sort of uh, already external motivator or motivation to get better. Um, because I remember those days of working in New Jersey and, you know, the, the, the first year of practice, I thought everybody could be like fixed with manual therapy and then I got a little bit wiser and I'm like, I think there's populations that shouldn't even get manual therapy. And I started putting my finger on it with especially workman's comp. Um, and then some like motor vehicle accident, like that felt the same too. Uh, like, or maybe something where if, if there was litigation behind it, I'm like, what's, what's your motivation to get to hundred percent in, you know, 10 PT visits. If you tell a judge that you didn't get better, it gets you a million dollars or whatever. Like, uh, I, I didn't want to be a part of that. And so um, having, you know, a foothold in gyms where most of our clients are already training, wanting to run marathons, wanting to improve body composition, um, it, it's, it's great. Like the, the avatar is, is more defined before it walks through the door. And even so, like we could probably even get more specific with our age groups, like 25, 30, 35 not a whole lot of expendable income. You're sort of fine feeling jacked up from, you know, drinking all weekend and not getting enough sleep. And you're like, ah, oh, whatever. My neck feels like shit. Most of the week, my back feels like shit. Like, you know, Barry's boot camp will still get the job done. But the, you know, the 40, 45, when that, that, uh, that curve crosses where you're starting to value your health more than you care about how much money you have in your, your bank account. Like we're starting to have some really, fun projects with like, you know, 50 year olds who are like, yeah, like I want to get blood work done. I want to get on supplements. I maybe want to get on testosterone because I'm done having kids. I've, I'm happy to, you know, get on a training plan and a rehab plan. Uh, you know, a real case right now is a uh, guy got connected with Charlie. Charlie was still in Florida. So I did like his, uh, his first discovery visit. He's got, you know, 
shoulder this, low back that, some foot stuff going on. He's in the orthopedic cycle for his feet. And so I evaluated him and I'm like, Steve, like, I think, I think if you're patient with this, if we take sort of a training first approach, at least for the first couple of weeks, like I'm going to write you a program where we're only going to ask you to do exercises where your joints can get into the positions to absorb and adapt to stress, like for your body, because he's lacking ankle dorsiflexion. So we have to accommodate that. There's some stuff with his back. So just onboarding him with like a, a two week training program that he can start to implement on his own. Like we haven't even done any hands on yet and his back and shoulder are already starting to feel better. And then we can sort of navigate his feet uh, as it's become apparent that the, the orthopedic side of things, like they're not getting a lot of information from like imaging or diagnostic testing, which I thought might be the case, but he was doing that with the orthopedist and he was patient. So I'm like, you do that, get your test. And if nothing shakes out with imaging or, you know, there's nothing soft tissue pathology or joint pathology then. And then of course, like this past week, Charlie's back in town. I'm like, Steve, you're going to see Charlie this week. Tell him, like, I'll tell him, but you tell him we have the training piece going pretty well. And we just need to, uh, to figure out what the plan is with uh, your feet and ankles. And then today we did foot and ankle stuff and go figure. He can walk a little better, maybe temporarily, but it also like brings his guard down. Maybe that he's not needing to to medicalize everything and going to be stuck in this, uh, this orthopedic cycle. But yeah, there's probably another little bit of a ramble or a tangent for you, but that like, that's, that's like the ideal sort of case is 45, 50 year old person who's got a, just dinged up all over because they've never had any guidance and we can sort of uh, manage all the components a little bit. And then when you manage everything, it makes it, uh, everything works toward the same goal a little bit better because Yes, like we work with people who are active, but if I didn't know what somebody's training program at this point is, I almost am, I'm less confident in my ability to help them from a physical therapy standpoint if I don't know what their training is. Because if it's, you know, the same thing at 6 a.m., four days in a row, and they're getting four hours of sleep, I don't think I can help that person until we, we recognize that we need to fix that stuff in the process. So how much of an advantage is it for you that you, for your business that you have that dual threat, that not only you can do the therapy, but you can also provide the training on, on to back it up. It's massive. Um, it, it's been great because, look, physical therapy should be short-term. It should be temporary. Um, you know, I, I get that people want to just get hands-on stuff weekly for the rest of time, and that's fine. Like, I'm happy to work with that person because I'll tell them, look, we can do this. But having the ability to also train, it's twofold. One, if somebody has uh, started to get better with, you know, we'll call it physical therapy or traditional rehab, I believe that everybody should train. Like everybody should train. You do not have a right to be fit and or pain-free the rest of your life just by existing. I don't think that's the case, especially in New York City where, you know, there's all sorts of external stressors and the lifestyle is not conducive to being chill and, and, and loose and, and mobile and, and strong. Um, so I've had, I've converted rehab patients to long-term training clients. And then to go along with that, you know, similar to my guy, Steve, if somebody comes in and the, 
the evaluation isn't like my ankle is jacked up from this. It's a little bit more, yeah, like this thing bothers me here. This thing bothers me there. I'm like, well, you know, let's talk about your training. And I, I'm I, look, I'm not the greatest programmer in the world. I know that I'm a physical therapist. I do way more physical therapy over the years than training, but I know more than enough about training and programming at this point where I can get most people on a good to great program that will not ask them to do anything their body shouldn't be doing or can't do. And so being able to take that approach for the people that are willing to be more patient or have like this, this long-term lifestyle change right out of the gate is even more valuable because then I have somebody who can, you know, like I have three, three avenues. Like somebody can come in for PT. Somebody can come in where they're not really sure what they need. And then somebody can come in without pain or injury and I can, I can help them that way too. So question for you. So let's say you're working with someone, they come in and, you know, they're coming to see you for physical therapy. And then you're like, Hey, we got to do some of this other training. Like, how does that conversation generally go? And how do you integrate that? Because I think probably people are coming to you if they're in pain, right? And they're in a situation where they need help from a medical professional. So, I mean, obviously you're doing that it's within your scope, but when you sort of mention the training aspect and exercise and strength training and in doing it in an intelligent fashion, like what is, what's the response from that? What's the reception from your clients? Well, to, to answer the first piece about that, like what the conversation is like, the conversation is different every time because some people, the conversation is had or done on the phone before they've walked through the door. Some people, yeah. the conversation can be had in that first session. Some people, I, I, you know, I sort of like to feel out what their relationship is with training or fitness before I start saying like, hey, you came in for an ankle, uh, an ankle issue, but there's some value in doing push-ups or upper body training or conditioning. Um, so, you know, sometimes I have to figure out if, you know, it's, it's relatively stereo stereotypical, but like the, the 48 year old mom who already does Pilates like five times a week and wants to just stay you know, long and lean and not get too bulky. Um, that conversation takes a little bit more time than, you know, this guy, Steve, who like, he basically came on, came in and just admitted it was carte blanche. He was like, he's like, Hey, like, I, I don't think I've done anything right for a very long time. Like you guys are the professionals. What can you do for me? And so obviously I prefer when that's the case. Um, but, you know, I, I always ask about training in the first session even if it's just so I have the information about what they're doing in their, you know, 23 hours a day that they're not seeing me. Because realistically, if, if the most influence I have on somebody face to face is three hours a week, like I really need to use those three hours to help them control and understand what the other, I'm not going to do the math, but hundreds of hours uh, should look like and how they can, how they can navigate it relatively independently. Um, cause look, yeah, I'm sure you guys have both trained people for years and you're like, eh, some days it probably feels a little bit more like, like babysitting or just keeping things on the straight and narrow, but that's fine. I'm completely okay with that if we're all on the same page. Um, but I do like to be able to get people to train on their own if, if they're willing and I think they're capable. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. 
We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So uh, there's there's a couple things I want to break apart here, and, and it's interesting because you saw it firsthand, Kyle. So you can kind of uh, see, you know, in, in my on the macro level in my facility when we had it, I had this whole algorithm that I had drawn up that was going to be this utopian type of environment where essentially there was literally, and I explained the story, there's literally two doors. If you went in the, the, the back side door, that got you into PT. And then if you went through the front door, you came in for fitness. And what I would explain to people is that if we had the checks and balances, sometimes people came in for fitness and we do some you know, entry-level screening and realize, look, you have pain doing some really fundamental things. And I don't know what that is. So we better get that checked out. So doesn't mean you can't be a client, but you also have to be a patient for a little while until we can make sure that's gone. Now, on the flip side, what should have happened when you go in as a patient is that if they go through their testing and there's no pain there, but you're just dysfunctional, like you're just either you're just not healthy or fit, and that's what's causing the problem, then you, you went from being a patient to being a client. And that's ideally how it works in a perfect world. But when the business models don't mesh, right? And so our model is, is you're going to get better regardless, right? And, and that's, and it's a long-term type of thing. Whereas if the PT model is not really in the best interest of the business model to, to get people better, because we want to squeeze every visit out of their insurance for, for the year, um, you know, we saw it firsthand and then it doesn't work that way. So from a system standpoint, um, the checks and balances is really what drives those decisions. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, so the first gym I worked in in the city, Drive 495, you know, rest in peace, uh, closed, closed early on in the pandemic. Um, and that was relatively utopian. Now, again, like we can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. But when everything, so like everybody walked in the same door for us. And then within that gym, we we had ways of deciding how, uh, how to divvy things up. Um, and again, it's, it's also utopian because the, you know, with the reputation of the gym and the price point of the gym, generally everybody could also like anybody that was a member of the gym could also afford. And I say afford because there's a lot of people who can afford a lot of things, but maybe don't see the value in them. Um, which is why like, like probably the three of us can all like, we could talk about utopia for hours and hours and hours and to to actually see it in practice in the world at some point in the history, we're like, we might never get there where it's like perfect. Like it, we could probably get it to like 90, 95% uh, with the, the right group of people. Um, but yeah, like the checks and balances, like everybody has to be on the same page. Like physical therapy needs to understand the coaching role. Coaches need to understand the physical therapist role. They both need to understand what's realistic for a patient, both physically and maybe financially. Um, but I do believe that everybody that's in pain or injured should continue to train. So if you have the ability, like if somebody walks through the physical therapy door and you only have to send them through one more door to get training because you like you either don't want to or you can't or you want to build a relationship, then you should absolutely like you don't even have to sound like a used car salesman. It is not used car salesman. This is like I'm trying to get you 
as as the best version of you as quickly as possible, then train. Like if I if I only get three hours a week with you, then I want to give you to somebody else that can get three hours a week with you doing all sorts of, uh, you know, just say inputs or good stress that can move your body's dial in the right direction. And then, you know, just to, to bring it down a little more on the micro level and part of that process and journey for that individual, you know, something we brought up a couple of times is like scope of practice and how you just brought up how the, the coaches need to understand PT and PTs need to understand coaching. Like I'm not going to refer someone to a PT who doesn't get what I do. Like I, I'm, I want to send people to you because you get it. And then, and then, and so it's going to be a good relationship, not only for me, but more importantly for the client slash patient. Um, and so I think that fear of scope of practice, I think it's more malpractice to not know it. It doesn't mean I'm going to go be a PT and start sticking needles in people and, and making diagnosis. It means I need to know enough about what Kyle does so we can have that conversation. And if we're in the same building, that's ideally the utopia that I wanted to have is I could take this client that, that just had some shoulder, you know, pinching in their shoulder when they do an impingement test. And I want to be able to walk over and say, Kyle, look, this is, you know, this is whoever, this is Joe. He's got some painful impingement on his right shoulder. If you could figure out what's going on here, here's his program. Here's what I'm doing to make sure there's nothing that that's, that's contraindicated from what you see. You work on that painful shoulder. I'll take care of the rest and let's meet back and see where this lands. And then there has to be some progressions, regressions and understanding what are you handling? What am I handling? So let's talk a little bit about that progression, regression, or, or maybe even explain to me what a lateralization is. That's Charlie talk that maybe everybody doesn't know what that actually means. Yeah, happy to actually, you know, this podcast is like well-timed. So, um, you know, quick, quick aside, like probably five or six weeks ago, I did, you know, my first like talk for a group of, it was mostly trainers. There were a couple of physical therapists there, but the premise was, um, I think it was like, training patients or training clients in the presence of pain or injury. Like, and I just spoke an hour on, and it was mostly for the coach or the trainer. Um, and yeah, we talked about lateralizations, regressions and referring out. Um, let's because, because the tail end of that question sticks in my brain most vividly. We'll talk about like lateralizations, regressions first. Um, all right. So Eric walks through the door. Or, oh no, let's do this. Eric already like exists in a training facility and you have a training program. So let's go with like our, I, you know, I think you guys are probably like, we'll say old school, like you guys still use spreadsheets for, for training programs? Yes. Okay. So I, if I say cell or box, you understand what that is. Like the, the exercise that's in the cell or the box. All right. So you have your, you know, three day a week strength training program something let's go with shoulder impingement so you have right shoulder impingement so i look at that program and the first thing i'm going to look at is everything that involves your right shoulder and then i'm going to decide this might even be before i've even assessed or evaluated your shoulder like you might even know you might have enough information already to be like all right you shouldn't press or you shouldn't pull or you shouldn't do anything overhead um which those things can mostly be decided whether you're a coach or your a physical therapist um if you understand like joints which i think both people should and you know where joints can go to get into an overhead motion or you know uh, an, an abduction or adduction moment in their arm um so to me charlie use or so charlie uses a language called lateralizations and regressions um 
And a lateralization is an exercise that replaces a current exercise with this same training adaptation goal. So if, you know, if you came in and you had your shoulder hurts and it hurts to go overhead, but it doesn't hurt to go out in front or, or slightly less than overhead, instead of doing uh, pull-ups, we're going to do like some sort of single arm, almost vertical pull down with a Kaiser or a cable column. So that's a lateralization. A regression is an exercise that you can do to get back to doing the originally intended exercise. So if somebody can't go overhead, a regression is literally anything like ART to somebody's lat or Terry's major, like that is a regression. Foam rolling uh, your lateral lib rib cage, like that can be a regression. Um, so in this talk, because I was speaking to coaches, I I made the case for like having a mindset of figuring out their lateralizations better than their regressions. Because if you choose lateralizations, you can almost be right a hundred percent of the time. Like if you're if you're trying to if you're trying to fix something without having a full set of tools to evaluate, assess, uh, and treat, then you're you're like you're hunting in the dark a little bit. And that might work with some people, but if the goal for most people that walk through the door is to, you know, it's performance driven or body composition driven, like 99% of the time, especially in general population, like everybody just wants to look better naked. Like nobody says it that way, but that's probably what everybody wants in general population. Like you're going to get there much more efficiently with lateralizations than doing, you know, 40 correctives for ankle dorsiflexion and, and shoulder flexion in the first uh, 40 minutes of a workout. All right, so I wanna um, change it up a little bit because something that you, you dropped earlier is something I definitely wanna circle back to in terms of the actual business of physical therapy, right? And so um, you're a parent now, Kyle, and if someday you know your child comes to you and says, you know, dad, I wanna be a physical therapist, you're not gonna turn to your wife and go, we're set, honey, pick the vacation home, we're good. Like, thank God, it, it, it's become a really difficult occupation to be financially prosperous. And, and part of that is due to the incredibly high cost of education. Um, you come out with a ton of debt that you have to uh, incur. And then you have these sometimes less than competitive salaries, especially if you're going to go to work for one of the big conglomerates, because like you said, there, there aren't a lot of, you know, uh, the user word mom and pop, uh, you know, places, which on a side note, mo the mom and pop episode of Seinfeld is one of the better ones. So if you want to go look that up on Netflix, plus you have this battle for, for insurance reimbursement. Um, is there a path for financial success for, and sustainability really for a PT without having to own your own clinic? The short answer is yes. Um, we do it. Like we, uh, as far as I know, and I say, whenever I say we, I say, you know, it's Charlie and I, and also press now, um, we have never owned a brick and mortar we've only ever either paid like a monthly rent to have space in a gym or currently we pay like independent trainers uh like we we book slots of time in gyms when we know we're going to use them which is even more cost effective so it's almost like the um the financial hurdle to running a business as a physical therapist is probably the lowest it like it could ever be. I, like, I don't know how it could be lower 
unless actually there's probably, I know there's this, people are probably doing business out of their, you know, their place of living. Like they've converted some room in their house or apartment or studio to, you know, their business and people come to them. Um, so if you can afford your, to get your LLC or PLLC or PC, and then, you know, get your liability insurance and your, your tax ID number and your credit card swiper, uh, that I think is, you can, you can do all of that for less than $1,500, I think. Um, and then you just, you know, where it becomes, uh, it depends answer is like, how badly do you want to do this? And I remember being in PT school, like I made jokes. There was one class where it was like one of the, the, the cultural class of PT or something. And a blind physical therapist came up, not, not one specifically, but just the idea of a blind physical therapist came up. And one of the kids in class laughed and was like, who, who would allow that? And I immediately just blurted out. I was like, I'd rather have a, a passionate or a good blind physical therapist working on me than you. Like, I just said that straight out because like, it, I think it was probably third year. We all knew each other's personalities pretty well. Um, so really, I, like, I think it all starts with passion. Like, yes, the, the cost of physical therapy school, and I'll only speak for the US because if you can go to PT school somewhere else, like that's probably the way to go. Um, you know, I, I just started paying student loans again and man, I missed those three years of, of not having to pay them already. I'm gonna be paying them off for a long time, but I've at least been able to position myself in a way where it's not gonna force me to live paycheck to paycheck or, or imagine this, like imagine having the title of doctor being 35 years old and saying, I'm not like, this is, this is alternate universe me and needing a roommate. Like you need to find a roommate on Craigslist because that's the only way to afford a place of living in New York city, because you're probably going to have a, a job where you're making, I don't know what starting salary is now for me. I think it was 70, 10 years ago, maybe it's 80, 85, but that's in the city where like, good luck finding a place to live in a reasonable area for less than I'll say 2,500 a month, but that even might be generous. Um, you know, one, one bedroom in Manhattan is probably at least that in most of the, the enjoyable areas. Um, so I know that's a little bit of a roundabout answer, but the, like, the answer is yes. Like the, the actual financial cost to run your own physical therapy business is very, 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 very low. But the, like, I, I wouldn't call it cost, but like the investment that has to come from your you know, you wanting to do right by the patient, you wanting to be the best physical therapist you can be, or, or like, you want to be the best, like, I work with Charlie Weingroff, like, I have to compare myself to who I believe is like the best person in the world at what they do. So that I have days where I have to like, remind myself, all right, it's okay that I'm not Charlie, I'm still going to try and be as good as Charlie is. Um, but also, I can just be as good as I, I can. Um, so really passion and what you're willing to put in it, into it that isn't necessarily financial is really what needs to be considered before you go into PT school, I think. So you you had mentioned passion a couple different times. And uh, obviously, you know, in, in the world of, of being a clinician and helping people and even coaching, passion is, is, is a very powerful word. But uh, besides, obviously, the passion, what piece of advice would you give to young and aspiring physical therapists? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll take the ones that worked really, really well for me. Network and do everything you can, like that you can 
to like put your in front put yourself in front of uh in front of like the right people i mean the the prime example like i'm the prime example i read a book that changed how i felt about things and i like i was like you know what i'm gonna email the publisher i emailed larie draper and she was like oh there is a you know there's a gym in in northern new jersey i know the owner eric degatti there, there's a PT clinic attached to it. I reached out to them. I set up my own clinical, which I think was like not allowed at the time, which that is stupid. Like uh, that, all right, remind me of that after I get through this point, because then there's like a very concrete answer for when you go to PT school. Um, and then, so then I got in front of Eric, Eric like Charlie started doing things uh, for Larie Draper who was recording things. And I literally just like, I, I can scroll through my Facebook messenger right now and go back to 2011 or 2012. The first time I messaged Charlie and be like, Hey, you know, it was like this long, like, you know, what you do is what I want to do. Like, here's what I'm doing currently. Do you like, what else could I do? And he just, you know, he gave me like a two sentence answer. Like you just keep doing what you're doing and you'll probably end up in the right spot. And then slowly, like, I just kept doing more things. I paid to go to one of his courses. I reintroduced myself. I asked him what it would take to get him to come speak at my school because I was like, I, I was so moved by, again, you know, we're ending up back at passion, but I was so moved by what I had read and connecting with these people and like what Charlie was speaking about that I was like, I want everybody to hear this. And I, Charlie bartered with me. He's like, you're going to edit my Nike paper. He had to write a paper for Nike. And it was great because like, you know, talk about uh, a symbiotic relationship. He was getting somebody to edit his paper for free. And I was like, I'm getting to read 80 pages of like a PDF of Charlie Weingroff's brain right now. This is the greatest thing in the world. And then he came up to, to Sage and spoke for a couple hours. And then we got dinosaur barbecue afterwards and talked business. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, I would be happy to have a, a new grad work with me in New York city. It wasn't me. I, I wasn't right for the position right away, but because I did these things and continued to stay, uh, you know, like relatively close with him and other people, two and a half years went by, I get a text like, Hey, you still want to work in New York city? And I, I was literally like probably that exact week looking at houses in North Jersey, because I, I thought it was going to be my destiny that. I was going to be just a PT in North Jersey and that would have been fine. But, you know, we were living in New York and I wanted to be a physical therapist in a gym in New York, literally drive 495 with Charlie Weingroff and Don Saladino. That was my dream job when I was at school. And then two and a half years later, it, it all came to fruition, but it, it all came with a lot of networking. Um, and I, I think networking is a big piece. Um, the quick, the quick other piece of advice would be like, if you're going to PT school, pick a PT school where you can pick your clinicals. Cause if they're going to just like force you to go to some rehab facility in Virginia, um, yeah, there's value to that. But being able, like if, if you're one of the, you know, the 20% of your class or 10% of your class, that's passionate, like to be treated equal to the other 80% that are just there to get their degree and then practice and, you know, work nine to five or seven to three or seven to seven, and then go home and, and not give a, a shit about like, being a better physical therapist or, or helping their patients, even when they're not in front of them, then like that, that to me is bullshit. Like you, you can, you know, again, passion, like channel that passion and like find that awesome clinic like I did um, and, and got me in front of the right people that just 
kept like pushing me down like the right side of the fork in the road until I've, uh, you know, which never ends, but I still feel like I'm in such a unique place and I'm very grateful, but you know, luck is when you know, opportunity meets preparation, something like that. So I, I did all the preparing I could, but I'm also aware that there was some opportunity that might not necessarily, like I wasn't completely earned or deserving at times, maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome here and there. Yeah, but there's there's an important lesson there, Kyle. And and so um being able to find pick who that someone is that I want to do what that that person's doing. And then take just taking your shot, like swinging for the fences. You know what I mean? Like it was funny when I spoke at my first summit for FMS and it was way in over my head. And 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 Lee Burton introduced me and he tells a story of how I got involved with FMS. As he said, you know, we did the first course, the first course ever in the New York area. Um, I took my whole staff there. I got, and I had met Lee previously at like, an, I don't know, an idea or conference or something like that. And I just got his number and I just kept hounding him. And he said he would turn to gray. This is before they had like an office, before they had a building, before they had anything. It wasn't even a course. He's like, we got this guy from New Jersey. He keeps calling us and he, he wants to get involved. He's like, get involved in what? Like we, we screen high school kids with this movement screen. He's like, he just keeps calling. And so finally, he's like, all right, so we're teaching a class in New York. You want to come help? And I'm like, yeah. And so I work for free and I knew the stuff and I walked around and helped people. And they're like, you're pretty good at this. You want to teach a course? I'm like, yeah. And then they gave me a small course. And then that turned into, you know, a 15 year plus relationship speaking all over around the world because you just got to swing and take your shot. Now, sometimes that email never gets read. That message never gets read and they blow you off and they big time you. So what? You're in the same spot you were yesterday. You know, take that shot, reach out, and you'll find, as you said, to kind of put, you know, a bow on everything. It's a pretty small community, and you'll find that the people who have had that success that someday some kid's going to reach out to, to Kyle Balzer and say, hey, I want to do what you do. And since you've been through that, you're going to respond right away, and you're going to give that opportunity to somebody else. Yeah, so, I've, I've anytime, like, I've had people reach out, um, and I'm like, yes, like, you tell me a couple times that like, I'll, I'll make a 30 minute phone call for anybody. And I, you know, I, I assume this isn't going to blow up and I'm going to like 40 emails after this and people are going to try and consume my entire schedule with this, but I will always make time for somebody that wants to do right in the industry. Yeah. So, you know, um, with that, I always tell everybody, like when I speak at conferences, it always amazed me when the, when the, 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 the presenter like won't share their information. Like I want you to have my information and sometimes you won't reach out. I've had people that reach out to me 10, 15 years later. They're like, oh, I took this, you know, I was at your whatever workshop that you taught, you know, back in, you know, 2006. And like, if I made enough of an impact that you remember me 10, 18 years later, whatever it is, like I did my job. Like I can give you 10 minutes of my time. You know what I mean? I, I, you deserve that. Um, but with that, you've come a long way. You've done a lot of things. I know you got a family now. Kind of tell us what's what's next on the horizon for you, Dr. Balzer. Oh, that's a good question. Man, life is a time warp when you have a newborn. Um, it's amazing. But um, yeah, I would say on the horizon, um, you know, 35, I'm 35 now. 35 was a pretty cool year. Uh, got a full-time therapist working for me you know, started to do more of this stuff, which this is on the horizon, you know, sort of like growing the brand and the business in a way that isn't just treating and training people. Um, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful 
uh, and optimistic that in the near future, I think we'll be in like, not our brick and mortar, but a brick and mortar that we can call home. Um, so I'm hopeful for that in 2024. And then for me, like personally, uh, I realized that I like managing people and uh, I listened to it on a, a podcast that Mike Boyle was on recently. Like, yeah, it, it's cool to, to be able to do something yourself, but what's even cooler is to get like a handful of people to do what you do at your standard. So trying to get better at that, because um, I don't think I'll ever get back to doing 25 to 30 sessions a week. I don't know if I can, um, but also like teaching and consulting. So if this is a way to promote that, you know, I, I thought my, my talk at Body Space Fitness in whatever, October, November, I, I hate public speaking or previously hated public speaking, but maybe it was just because I was forced to public speak on behalf of other information. But now that I get to speak on what I want to talk about and what I can share to, to make the, the profession or professions, I think better equipped to do what they do. I like the idea of getting to maybe, uh, maybe perform better at some point, or, you know, maybe gyms just bring me in for a day to help them understand the, the lateralizations and regressions and how they can do that for, for their people specifically, and then referring out, because I think that is, you know, that is probably missing from, from, uh, from the gym the most, but I, I think, I think that's just more a product of like, it's hard for, you know, a coach to have a relationship with like a physician or an orthopedist in, in most, most instances. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully more teaching consulting. And then, you know, it, it feels like the sky is the limit with business uh, where we are right now. So yeah, that's that. Well, good for you and kudos on everything you've accomplished in the time since we've last seen each other. And Mike, before we wrap up, I don't know how it's, it's sitting with you, but I'm, you know, the, the, the old school profiling that, that Kyle gave us, you know, I guess we don't come off as the TikTok dance guys. Uh, wait, wait till you see what I just put together earlier today. I'm just, that's yes. all I got to say. There we go. We're, we got, we're going to reinvent ourselves, Balzer. You wait. Just wait. <laughs> I welcome it, guys. It'll, it'll push me. I'll, I'll maybe someday have a, a TikTok myself. But for now, it's just like trying, well, don't, trying don't to put wait a reel on out on Instagram. Like, what button? I can't trim this. I cannot trim this cliff. Why can't I trim this cliff? <laughs> no, that's, we've that's crossed that threshold where we're definitely old creepers if we get TikTok at this point. Um, exactly. but there's, I don't think, uh, there's anything we can do to top that. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up with this. And we want to thank you for, for joining us, Kyle. And thank you all for listening. And this has been the principles of performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the principles of performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like, and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.